You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Today, we're joined by registered dietitian Alita Yakabelis. I started working with Alita two years ago in hopes to fall back in love with food. On top of my food allergies, my relationship with food was in a really bad place. I honestly didn't know up from down because I started to demonize so many foods that were safe for me to eat, but bad in the eyes of healthy eating. Alita helped me realize the rules and fear I was creating around eating, and I've really come a very long way since working with her. So I'm super excited to have her join me and Dr. G in this conversation about food allergies, diet culture, and intuitive eating. We cover a lot in this episode from what is intuitive eating, no, it's not just pizza and donuts, how to recognize if you or a loved one is struggling with disordered eating, the shocking facts of how many people with food allergies have a troublesome relationship to food, and how to break out of these vicious cycles. Without further ado, I bring you Alita. Welcome, Alita, to The Itch. We're very excited to have you here with us and to talk about nutrition and food allergies and a whole bunch more. So can we just get a little bit of a background on who you are and what you do and your food allergies or no food allergies? I know, but they don't know. So let us know. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I am Alita. I'm a registered dietitian based in Toronto, Canada, and I grew up in a big Italian family where food was always a really big part of our gatherings. I actually had an uncle who was a trained chef and my dad uh, learned to cook from him and, and also was someone who just really loved spending time in the kitchen. So I had lots of opportunity growing up to learn from both of them and just kind of absorb their passion for food and cooking from a pretty young age. So I've always had an appreciation for the human connection and I think the tradition that is also made possible through food and how powerful this can be. But my interest and nutrition came a little bit later. When I first got into strength training in my early 20s, I was putting in a lot of work in the gym and starting to get curious about how I could use nutrition to help me get stronger and perform better. And at that time, I was in a completely different field of study. I was doing a co-op work term as a marketing and communications associate when I stumbled upon this little bit of life advice that found me at a time when I was feeling a little unfulfilled where I was at. The quote was, the work you do while you procrastinate is probably the work that you should be doing for the rest of your life. And the overarching sentiment of these words really resonated with me when I was spending my lunch breaks at this job, just researching nutrition and like browsing through recipes. And so it was at that point, I finished out my work term at that placement and started applying to nutrition programs to start my journey to becoming a registered dietitian. Can you tell us a little bit about what a registered dietitian is? Because I think there's a lot of confusion between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist. 
nutritionist. Yeah, absolutely. So registered dietitians are a regulated health profession, meaning we have a regulatory body that kind of monitors us and we're held accountable for everything that we recommend and everything that we say. And I think it's actually similar with some nutritionists too. Some of them do have regulatory bodies, but it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. Dietitians go through a very standardized education process. We're required to complete a certain number of supervised practice hours before we're given our license to practice. And so it's just a little bit, it can be a little bit more tightly regulated than nutritionists, which isn't always a protected title, depending on where you are in the world. So basically what that means is that if the title isn't protected, that anyone could call themselves a nutritionist. So it's just a bit more of a mixed bag, I think is the way I would put it. With a dietitian, you kind of know what you're getting, you know, the standardized education behind their recommendations and how they practice. Whereas nutritionists, you can get a bit more variety. Alita, you don't specifically focus directly on food allergies, but you have food allergies. Can you let us know what your food allergies are so that everyone has a feeling for when we start diving into food allergies, what you manage at home? Yeah. So I have grown up with a peanut allergy. I was diagnosed, I think maybe around six months old. I had my first reaction when my mom gave me some peanut butter. It did not go so well. So um, I've lived with that my whole life. I've been retested a couple of times, still allergic. So it's just going to be like a lifelong thing for me, I think. And I have allergies to shellfish as well. Those are the, the main ones that I navigate. Great. Thank you. For today's conversation, we're going to focus on disordered eating and we're going to focus on foodology and how those two play into each other. To start the conversation, can you define what disordered eating means? Disordered eating is a descriptive term that we use for a range of irregular eating behaviors that may or may not fit into the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder such as anorexia or bulimia, binge eating disorder, or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And if left unchecked, disordered eating symptoms can lead to an eating disorder. So it sounds like disordered eating can really be very closely related to someone who has food allergies because with someone with food allergies, we are avoiding a lot of foods already. Do you know or can you explain how disordered eating and food allergies might cross paths? There is and there can be a lot of overlap between the common signs and symptoms of disordered eating and the realities of living with food allergies. Most notable, I think, is the preoccupation and the rigidity and the anxiety around food that can come with both disordered eating and food allergies. And one way that I see people deal with their food allergy anxiety is to implement a long list of food rules and restrictions that help them feel safe and comfortable. So when we look at the research, one journal article that I found recently showed that um, particularly people who struggle with a lack of confidence in managing their food allergies and those following restrictive elimination diets are at an increased risk of developing eating disorders. Do we know if there's any research saying that people with food allergies have eating disorders or if there's a correlation between food allergies and eating disorders? So the same journal article that I was just referencing was a study that was evaluating the impact of the interaction between biological, psychological, and social factors involved with food allergy and the prevalence of eating disorders. The study followed up to 75 participants who all had early onset food allergy over five years they were followed and compared this group to 81 of their healthy peers. So people who did not have food allergies and the results showed that the food allergy group 
in the food allergy group, 50% of the female participants reported an eating disorder compared to only 6.7% of their healthy female peers. So it does seem this research article, I mean, it's just one, we have to kind of look at the broader evidence to make conclusions and further recommendations. But this one does seem to show that there is increased prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders in those that also have food allergies. That's a really crazy number, 50%. And I think that a lot of the times when you have disordered eating, it's challenging to notice or to recognize that it is something within you. And when you defined it earlier, it is really hard to say, okay, this is disordered eating because I already have so many food rules because of food allergies and they it's just a gray area. Can you outline anything that a parent or a friend could look at and say, that's not your food allergy, that's actually disordered eating, just so they can help their friend or their family member navigate the two separately? Yeah, that's such a good question. Sometimes you get so wrapped up in it, you don't even realize that there's anything abnormal going on. So sometimes it takes that outside eye to kind of catch it and just notice in a kind way and just, you know, check if the person's doing okay. But sometimes signs of disordered eating could include frequent dieting or they're otherwise known as like yo-yo dieting where you're just jumping from one diet to the next and increased anxiety associated with specific foods or meal skipping could also be signs of disordered eating. Chronic weight fluctuations would also be included and some signs and symptoms to look out for. Having rigid food rules and rituals surrounding food and exercise might be another kind of red flag to look out for. Feelings of guilt and shame associated with eating, preoccupation with food, preoccupation with weight, body image, um, that is to a point where it's really negatively impacting your quality of life. And last but not least, feeling loss of sense of control around food. I feel like those are a lot of boxes that a food allergy person can tick. Having rigid rules, having rituals even, um, avoiding foods, especially avoiding foods that kind of coexist with your allergens, but that you're not allergic to. I think that's a very common thing we see. And we know that you should eat all the foods that you can eat and that there is no reason to avoid foods unless you're allergic. So I think that it is a little bit of a gray area in in terms of navigating the two, in terms of navigating food allergy and disordered eating. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe diet culture also plays into this? When it comes to navigating food allergy, we have to remember too that people who are navigating food allergy are not immune to the rest of kind of diet culture and that society that we live in. So they've got this set of rules around what's safe and what's not safe based on their allergens when it comes to food. But then they're also exposed to all of these really polarizing headlines and just all this nutrition information, some of which is really misinformation that we're exposed to in the media all the time, which really glorifies certain foods. And, you know, superfood is a common label that gets attached to certain foods based on whatever the new research is around <laughs> different foods that, that comes out. And at the same time, it really demonizes other foods. And so you add this list of what's good and what's bad and what's healthy and what's not healthy, what's clean eating, and what's not clean eating on top of the safe and unsafe. And you get this like really complicated mix that gets really messy really fast. And it's almost hard to tease apart anymore what is really medically indicated to keep me safe due to my food allergies versus what is just diet culture that's further complicating something that really ideally, you know, food and eating shouldn't be an overly complicated thing, right? And so when it gets into that complicated territory with the mix of safe and unsafe and diet culture rules, it really, there's a huge potential to really negatively impact your relationship with food there. And I thought from reading your article, 
a really nice part about it was where you discussed the whole notion of what food is in general and how that gets shifted with food allergies. Can you go into that a little bit more? You just kind of touched on it. I think hearing you talk about it right now would be helpful for listeners. Ideally, food should really be a pretty uncomplicated part of life. It's a basic human need that we really should be trying to meet without a lot of thought or attention. But when you have food allergies, you run into a lot of scenarios where so much of your thought and attention is required each and every time you're putting food in your mouth just to keep you safe, that it really turns this thing that should be a simple, enjoyable thing into something that's not so simple and sometimes causes a lot of anxiety. Actually, in the clinic, I talk to a lot of patients who come in thinking that they have a food allergy, but they're actually sensitivities and not true anaphylactic food allergies. And I I talk about that a lot where, you know, just understanding that we're going to create anxiety around foods that we don't need to create anxiety around, then our life is just going to be less enjoyable. And I think that's kind of the the notion around this, but that's easier said than done because there's a lot of reasons that people create anxiety around food. And I think that's what we're really talking about today is what are those underlying factors that cause those eating disorders to kind of start creeping up? Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole other area with food sensitivities, like you're saying, and food intolerances that feed into disordered eating and eating disorders as well. And I think that's why it's so important to really get good medical consultation and figure out what do we really need to be avoiding for safety reasons versus what could be a bit of a brain gut response kind of reaction where you're feeling anxious about something and it leads you to to have an inverse reaction um, because that can get really restrictive really fast when you're always kind of, you have this surveillance system running for what's causing my symptoms and you start cutting things out left, right and center. You eventually get to a point where you're on a very limited diet and you're almost afraid of more foods than you really need to be, which can have really negative impacts um, for meeting your nutrition needs. Is there any type of intake questionnaire that you usually give to your patients or your clients that has been validated in this situation? Um, I don't know of one that specifically addresses like the food allergy population and disordered eating, but there are various eating disorder questionnaires that are validated is something that I have used to screen. Yeah, I guess just as a practitioner, I was just wondering, this isn't something that allergists, you know, that we talk about as frequently as I think we should. And so I didn't know if there was any sort of intake questionnaire that you would recommend practitioners to use in their clinics to kind of figure out if there's another component that we need to be worrying about. Especially since you mentioned, I know it was still a small population, but if 50% of people are experiencing disordered eating with food allergies and they come to the allergist with a lot of anxiety, you don't know what's going on in their house. You just know what's going on in the clinic but you don't know what they're doing to manage their allergies other than coming to see you. And it might be a very unhealthy relationship with the foods they can't eat. Yeah, it's so tough to tease it apart too. Like what is really the anxiety that's related to the food allergy and what's outside of that? It's really, I think it's really hard to tease that apart. So probably take multiple visits and just getting to know the patient or client a little bit better and using the screening tools, asking questions about, you know, maybe body image or relationship with food or how much, I think, a good thing to ask is just how much of their day is consumed with this, right? Because if it's getting to like 50% or 75% of their day is just like consumed about meal planning and finding safe alternatives and all of this stuff like that might be a good red flag to consider. Maybe there's something deeper going on here. So if you're occupied 70, 50 to 75% of your time with 
meal planning and with figuring out what your next meal is going to be or what the next meal in the next four days is going to look like, is that a sign of disordered eating more than just managing allergies? I don't know that those numbers exact. Those are just based on clinical experience, not like research or anything like that. But I would say even more than like 30 or 40 percent of your day, like if you can imagine spending that much of your time and energy just on food, which is should be, again, such an uncomplicated relatively small part of life you've got other stuff going on how can it not be impacting your quality of life then if you're spending so much of your time and energy on that that one thing i shared those numbers with my husband actually earlier today and i said look at this numbers like isn't that crazy and he said to me he's like it makes a lot of sense that people with food allergies can tip into disordered eating so easily because already i know how much time you're worried about finding a safe meal. And when we add on also all of the concerns about eating healthy and eating the right stuff and trying not to demonize foods that are considered unhealthy, like how how hard that is already. I spend so much time thinking about food allergy and on top of it being concerned with diet culture. I mean, I've shared some of my history of disordered eating tendencies. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I've shared some of my disordered eating journey and how diet culture has really complicated my relationship with food. So it's just really good to be talking about this because I really do think that no one is talking about it or we're talking about it in a very wishy-washy way. And we're not openly saying, look, you've got food allergies. Your relationship is already problematic because you have to always be concerned about what you're eating because you don't want to have an allergic reaction. But on top of that, we have all of these other pressures going on in this society that you might need to just figure out what's going on um, and to check in with yourself and say what's allergies and what's not allergies. Uh, So talking about figuring that out, what can people with food allergies do to figure out how to better their relationship with food? Intuitive eating can be a really good model to strive for with trying to navigate life with food allergies and also trying to have that kind of healthy relationship between food, mind, and body. Can you define intuitive eating for those who don't know and just clarify it for those who might have seen it on the internet but still don't actually know what it is because it does not mean just eating pizza all the time? Absolutely, yes. So intuitive eating is a holistic approach to nutrition and whole person wellness. And at its core, it's really about eating in response to your individual hunger and fullness cues by respecting your body's signals about when, what, and how much to eat. It's really about developing a healthy relationship between food, mind, and body, and about asking yourself what you really need in a given moment and respecting your body and yourself enough to realize that your body's needs deserve to be met. That sounds really nice, but it also sounds really, really, really hard. So how can someone even approach an intuitive eating uh, lifestyle or a way of approaching food? So going back to your point about a lot of the misconception out there around what intuitive eating is, because I totally agree with you. I see a lot of messaging around, oh, intuitive eating is all about eating whatever you want and just not caring about your health or nutrition or anything like that, when there is so much more nuance to the approach that gets missed. So hopefully I can kind of help clarify some of those things here today. The first thing you kind of have to do is get clear on your food rules and where they're coming from. So that becomes a bit more complicated again with food allergy, because there are some rules that are 
legitimately related to your safety, right? You're avoiding certain certain allergens and staying away from those things. But then there's also the whole slew of food rules that can come from diet culture, the fad diets, elimination diets, recently demonizing of things like gluten and dairy for reasons that aren't really allergy related. It's just about if you avoid these things, you'll get more energy or you will reduce bloating or you'll just feel amazing all the time if you don't eat these foods. They're what's keeping you feeling lethargic and not your best. So if we get rid of those, you can finally live the happy, healthy, energetic life that you've always wanted, right? So it's really getting clear on what rules you live by and where those came from. Sometimes they come from family members and friends, nutrition and diet and all that stuff is a very common topic of discussion no matter kind of where you are it usually comes up and so with that sometimes comes a lot of misinformation around what foods are really capable of doing in terms of your health and wellness sometimes I think we put a little too much pressure and focus on food to either explain why we're struggling with something health-wise or as a way of explaining um, how we can cure ourselves from something when, you know, I'm a dietitian. I obviously think food's amazing and there, there's a lot of good that can be done by using nutrition, but it's not the only thing that's going to make or break your health and wellness. There's a lot of other pieces to consider. And so when we put too much focus on that one thing, it actually becomes an unhealthy thing. There's one thing I want to bring up and then we can jump back to intuitive eating because you mentioned the idea that it's easy for us to just go to food as a, the fix, the easy fix, the quick fix. I mean, that's something we can control and we can actually see what's going into our bodies. You showed me this amazing graph at one point by how much food actually impacts us and how much other things impact us health-wise. Can you share that or just talk a little bit more about what that is? And then we can share a link on our show notes. What Courtney's talking about is the determinants of health. And this is a pretty common tool or thing that gets thrown around. But I think a lot of people don't really understand the nitty gritty of it or the details of it. And so this graph that she's talking about breaks down all the determinants of health. So all of the factors of your lifestyle and your physical being that determine your health outcomes and breaks down the percentages for which determinants of health, like how much impact they have on your overall health outcomes. When we look at individual behaviors, which is the umbrella under which things like exercise and food choices fall under, that accounts for 36% of our potential health outcomes there when it when you look at all the determinants of health. So there's five categories in total. So the individual behaviors is just one of those five and food fits in that 36%. Of the 36%, there's actually like seven little subcategories. Food is just one of those. So one of the 36%. So all of those subcategories of individual behaviors, let's assume that they were all had an equal weight. That would leave food at being like 7%. So what you're eating, what's on your plate accounts for about 7% of determining your overall health outcome. I think the point about control is a really important one. I think that's why we tend to focus so much on it is because food feels like it's more in our control to change than a lot of other determinants of health sometimes. So obviously genetics, we can't really change our genetics. So we're given the cards, we're dealt, and we got to make the best of those. But food, we can change. There's all these diets we can go on. We can eat more of this. We can eat less of this. So it just feels like we have more control over it. I think that's why 
we tend to focus on it a bit more. So going back to intuitive eating, how do you start somebody with their journey towards intuitive eating? What are the initial steps that they have to take? So I think that going back to that, the first thing is just about really examining the food rules like you talked about. What comes from a medical consultation in terms of like, what are your true allergens? What do you actually need to be avoiding for safety? And really looking at the other foods you may be avoiding that aren't medically necessary and taking a hard look at why that's happening and how we can get you to a place where you can feel comfortable eating the greatest variety of foods that that's safe for you. Um, so food rules, work on food rules, I think would be a good first step to really expand the variety of foods that you're able to, to safely tolerate and feel comfortable eating on a regular basis. And that will lead into a bigger kind of exploration around how diet culture has actually maybe infiltrated your life. It can be a bit sneaky. Sometimes you don't even realize just because it's so prevalent all around us. People are always talking about what diet they're on or how much weight they've lost or on the the other side of that, how bad they feel or how guilty they feel for eating something and how everyone should be doing what they're doing because it's working for them or it worked for this influencer on Instagram. So it must work for me. There's so much of that going on. So it's really about understanding first and foremost how that's impacting you. And I say how, not really if, because I really feel like it impacts everyone to some level, whether you're aware of it or not. It's hard not to be when it's just everywhere you look. So that would be a first step. And then trying to improve interoceptive awareness, which is your awareness of the cues that your body is giving you, not just related to to hunger and fullness or anything related to eating, but our body gives us a lot of messages and cues all day, every day. And sometimes we fall a little bit, they fall on deaf ears. Sometimes we're not always attuned to those cues. We don't really know what different levels of hunger feels like, right? It's not just you're hungry or not. There's a spectrum there. You can be like a little bit hungry. You can be like ravenous and everything in between that. And same with fullness. It's not just full or not. Are you stuffed to the point? Like if you had another bite, that would be it. Or are you just kind of over the edge of neutral full? And again, everything in between those two points. And I think it's important to note here too that fullness and satisfaction, sometimes those words get used interchangeably, but they're different. Fullness is really just like a physical feeling. It's the absence of hunger, whereas satisfaction really brings in the joy and the pleasure component, which is something that's really focused on and intuitive eating and might come as a surprise because I think a lot of the messages that we get around food is that actually, if it tastes good or if it's enjoyable, it probably isn't that good for you and you should probably be limiting how much you're eating, right? But intuitive eating kind of turns that on its head and says, wait, actually the satisfaction factor is really important for a healthy relationship with food. You should be enjoying your food. You can enjoy your food and still be respecting your health. And so it's a good framework to use to get you to that point. And then I think another point was respecting your body. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I think the body respect thing for food allergies as it relates to that is more just about the variety piece, right? Not placing unnecessary restrictions that are related to your diet on your body, because again, that's going to make it harder to meet your nutrition needs, get all the vitamins and minerals that your body's needing and meet your your macronutrient needs as well. So the way I kind of look at variety when it comes to healthy eating and forming a healthy relationship with food is that every different food you're able to include in your diet is an opportunity to meet your nutrition needs, meet your vitamin and mineral needs, meet your macronutrient needs, get enough protein and carbs and fat and all of the stuff that your body needs to really function optimally and for you to feel your best. So every opportunity we cut out in terms of a food restriction, if it's not necessary medically, then really all we're doing is creating this 
relationship with food that's very based on deprivation and restriction. And it's also limiting the opportunities that we have every day to meet our nutrition needs the best that we can. Can you talk about one of the points in intuitive eating that's honor your feelings without using food? Because I think that's something interesting for foodology folks to hear as well. Yeah. So I think this kind of falls under the umbrella of more like emotional eating, of learning ways to cope with stress and anxiety, which are very real, regular things for people dealing with food allergies. The stress and anxiety can get quite heightened at different points, especially like eating out or eating foods that are you know prepared by other people, especially. Food is a common way that we can comfort ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a, quite a normal function of food. It's a source of comfort. It can definitely be that. However, that becomes a little bit problematic problematic when and if food is the only way we know how to cope with those difficult, uncomfortable emotions. And so I like to talk a lot about building a diverse kind of toolbox of of coping skills. And some of that might include comfort foods, but other things could include just trying to get more clear on what it is that you're feeling. Some of us are not very good at naming what we're feeling or putting words to that. And I think that can be a missed opportunity when we don't have a lot of that emotional intelligence, because having the emotional intelligence helps us identify what we're feeling. And that identification process then helps us better meet that need with something that's specifically targeted to that need. Food can kind of be a blanket one, right? It works for everything. It works when we're happy. It works when we're sad. It works across a lot of different emotions across that spectrum. But if you're identifying that you're sad and really that's more about being lonely, I mean, food's good, but it's not really going to keep you company. So if you're able to identify that, then the need, the way to meet that need becomes a bit more clear. Like you're needing connection, right? You need to phone a friend or you need to hop on a video call with someone or, or, you know, something, it can be a little bit different for everyone, but it just helps make the meeting your, your emotional needs without food a bit more clear when you're able to identify what it is that you're experiencing. I'm not sure if this makes a direct connection, but I know that when a lot of uh, food allergy people feel out of control or feel anxious, they have the opposite. They don't eat too much. They just stop eating out of fear. And they know that if I don't eat, I don't have to deal with anything like that. Would that also fall under the honoring your feelings without using food? Or would that fall into a totally different category? And I've just misinterpreted that for myself. (laughs) No, no. I think that almost fits more under the body respect, like respecting your body and respecting your health there, um, because you're still right. Uh, Sometimes anxiety and stress do result in the opposite. It's not emotional eating that happens. It's, you know, you have no appetite, so it's hard to eat and you end up skipping meals and, and whatnot. And so in those situations, I think it's really important to realize that your appetite or your hunger may be misleading you a little bit, and it's more influenced by your emotional need in that moment than your physical need for food energy. And so it's about realizing and checking in with yourself when that happens, like when's the last time I ate? And if it's been, you know, four or five hours or longer, even if you're not hungry, you kind of got to step up at that point and be like, okay, my body needs energy. I know it needs this like every couple hours through the day. And even though I'm not feeling hungry right now, what is in my best interest in this moment is to give myself some nourishment and, you know, allow my body to function the best it can while it rides this emotional wave. Because what happens when you don't do that, you don't approach hunger and eating from more of a practical standpoint is being underfed, spring meals, all of that stuff leads to increased anxiety and sometimes depression and, you know, different low mood experiences. So the skipping the meals while you may not feel hungry in that moment because you're anxious, it's going to 
probably lead to that anxiety worsening because your body's in like this fight or flight mode, right? It's like my basic need is not getting met. And so it's obviously not feeling safe and comfortable. That's like the breeding ground for anxiety. And so would you recommend that people meal plans or is that not really a part of intuitive eating? It absolutely can be. I think that's a really great point. I'm glad you brought that up because along with this idea of it's just about eating whatever you want, when you want, that doesn't seem to drive so well with planning ahead. Like how can you be intuitive if you've got a premeditated plan, but it totally can work. And it goes back to this idea of practical eating. So for example, if you know that you're going to be in a meeting or something where you can't be eating over lunchtime, the solution wouldn't be to just skip that meal because you couldn't eat that. It's planning ahead and eating before that, even if you're not hungry, you know, mid morning before you have to go to this meeting where you can't eat, it's eating beforehand so that you can be alert and at your best through the meeting. And then, you know, maybe eating afterwards if you're hungry at that point. So that can work the same with meal planning where you maybe plan out a couple dinner ideas for the week, but maybe you don't slot them into certain days, right? So you've got the plan for different meals that allows you to buy the ingredients for those meals. So you've got everything you need for the week. And then on the day, you can maybe be a bit more intuitive with, you know, this recipe sounds good for today. Let's go with that one. And then my other question was, as far as anxiety and food allergy, a lot of what at least the allergist community is hearing is just talking about parent anxiety around food and how that kind of translates into a child's anxiety and future anxiety potential in that child. And so I'm wondering, can you provide a little bit of insight into how a parent can think about this too, and how maybe intuitive eating could be kind of incorporated into a parent's life as they're managing their child's food allergies? Yeah, that's such a good point. It's such a good question. It's not just the person struggling with the food allergy you know, their support system too, that is really impacted by this. You're so right about that. From a parent's kind of end of things, trying to make food and eating and that whole experience as calm and as normal as possible, like given the safety concerns, because, you know, kids pick up on everything. And so even if you're trying to hide your anxiety about a situation, it still kind of comes through. Sometimes they pick up on that. It just makes them more anxious, I think. Trying to be mindful of that and just overall kind of promoting a healthy relationship with food as a parent, right? So including a wide variety of foods, not, you know, demonizing or overly glorifying any particular foods, being mindful of diet talk and how you talk about your own body. That can really have a huge impact on how your child sees themselves in their relationship with food and what's normal and what's not. You grow up in a household where everyone's dieting all the time. How are you supposed to know that anything else is normal, right? That's just what your environment was and how you grew up. And so it's easy to see how that can become the new normal. So I would say that for sure. I see a lot of that influence of diet culture passed down from parent to child. And sometimes it's always actually really well-meaning. Maybe the parent struggled with their relationship with food or weight growing up and was bullied for it, right? And they, of course, don't want that for their child. So they're trying to help them avoid that. And, you know, it's always, always, always well-meaning, I think. It's just sometimes we don't understand the consequences of that that can show up later in life. Thank you. That's so helpful. That's really good to hear for parents because I know that as a kid growing up with all of these food allergies, I always ended up eating the healthy choice. Not because I wanted to, but because that was the safe choice, you know, like the clean, clean, clean food. 
And then I would always get the, oh, well, you're so lucky that you have food allergies because you're not eating like all of the other fattening stuff or you don't have to worry about eating dessert. And it's just all of this strange messaging like, well, I wish I could eat what you guys are eating, but I'm eating this super healthy plate here. And then everyone's like, oh, I wish I could eat that. So the messaging you get that it's your safe food, but it's also all of this other healthy food. So that's how diet culture can also come into play. And I just remember a lot of talk when I was a kid about everyone worried about their cholesterol and how they wish they had Courtney's willpower. But in my mind, I was like, it's not willpower. It's all I can eat. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. So relatable. The part about willpower for sure. And just what's reinforced, right? You were positively reinforced for the way you were eating when it really wasn't so much of a choice as just what was safe, right? And so it's so easy to see how that can then become, oh, well, I'm praised for eating this way and I should probably continue doing that. Right. We have a lot to think about with this topic. And I think that we will have you back because I know that you wrote an article for Zestful all about satisfaction and food allergies and what satisfaction with food and food allergies look like. So we'll link to that. But I think that's a topic of its own. To round off this conversation, can you give us some practical steps that someone who thinks they might have disordered eating or who they think they know a friend or their child is also experiencing disorder? eating what they can do to help their journey to recovery? Yeah, I would say reaching out for help and support, whether it's kind of talking it out with a family or a friend that you feel safe with and kind of just getting a sense for like what's normal and not and you know what other people experiencing can be a good step to just get the conversation going if you have those people in your life who you feel safe opening up to because it can be a bit of a personal thing. And so um, we need to respect our boundaries on that too sometimes. But um, another good thing to do would be to get a good kind of interdisciplinary team going. So maybe you want to seek out a registered dietitian who specializes in this area, for sure, consulting with your allergist or doctor, again, with those those test results to get really clear on what your allergens really are, because we have a tendency to kind of overgeneralize sometimes. And, you know, you might have a peanut allergy, but then to create this safety kind of buffer zone for yourself, you then start eliminating all nuts and then not feel safe for a while and then not safe enough. And so we eliminate seeds and it becomes this big thing, bigger than it needs to be. And again, gets quite restrictive. So any of that is going on for you or if you're just not feeling confident in managing your food allergies, that seems to be another kind of red flag for developing these more disordered eating tendencies. It's a great opportunity to go check in with your doctor or allergist and just really get clear on what you're dealing with. So a registered dietitian could be part of that team as well to help with your relationship with food and correct any misinformation that you might have absorbed along the way related to diet culture and food and the impact that it really can have on your health and maybe just getting clear on that. There's a lot of, if there's a big like emotional component going on, you're just feeling really overwhelmed with stress and anxiety or low mood at different points. Therapists can also be really helpful. And I work really closely with therapists a lot of the time to just come together and, and help people struggling with this stuff the best that we can. It's really a multidisciplinary approach. I find is what helps people the most. It's not like a one and done usually. It would be nice if it was, but sometimes it takes a, a team working together for you to really get you feeling well and comfortable. Just in case someone isn't able to afford putting a team together, is there any resources that they can go to to start their journey? Yeah. So the intuitive eating book written by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush, they're two dietitians who started this approach over 30 years ago based on the evidence that they were seeing and the interactions they were having with their clients at the time. Their book is 
an amazing resource. They recently came out with a new edition as well, maybe in the summer, I think. So that's a great book to pick up. It's a pretty easy, quick read. I think that would be the first place to start. They also have a website if you're just looking for more general information, surface level stuff that also contains a lot of research about intuitive eating to kind of show its effectiveness and how the approach works. So if you're interested in doing that without kind of paying for the book first, that's totally an option as well. Great. And last thing, are there links to databases where people can find registered dietitians? Yeah. So I think it varies based on where you are, but I know in Canada, there's a couple different directories. Dietitians of Canada is one organization. They have a find a dietitian directory. It'll allow you to search based on where you're located for someone around you and also by specialty area if you're looking for something really specific because dietitians can specialize in a lot of different areas. So if you're looking for something specific, it's good to find someone who who works with that kind of condition or whatnot. Health Profs is another one that I find people commonly use to find various different health professionals, not just dietitians. That can be a helpful one as well. Great. Thank you so much. And we will definitely link to all of the different resources that we've talked about. And you have three articles on Zestful, so we'll link to all of those going into more details about intuitive eating, food fear and food allergies, and satisfaction with food and food allergies. Thank you so much once again, Alita, for joining us and sharing all of your knowledge. Of course. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.